everyone, and welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and I'm joined by... Brian, he, him. And I am our producer, Ian, also he, him. Today's episode is a story spotlight on Discworld, and we're going to be talking about some of the most well-known works of Sir Terry Pratchett. Gotta say, I have been looking forward to this episode. Yes, this one is one I'm excited to do. I recently discovered the Discworld books uh, about a year ago now, and they quickly became some of my favorite books. And to start things off, what is Discworld actually... It is a fantasy series by the renowned British author Terry Pratchett set upon a world that is a flat disc that rests upon the back of the giant turtle Atun. I think that's how it's pronounced. I think that's correct. It uh, is... You left out a, an important detail, which is that the disc rests on the back of the elephants, which stand on the great Atun. Ah, uh, oh, that's yes, correct. Yes, I forgot about yes. the elephants. <laughs> yeah. um, As Terry Pratchett uh, describes it to us, it was constructed by a god with more imagination than engineering sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. If the god had any engineering sense, there would be more triangles. Um, as you can kind of tell from the setup of the world is a flat disc set upon the back of four elephants that ride astride a giant turtle going through the skies, or well, the cosmos, it's pretty humorous. There's a lot of kind of absurd humor in there, but it's also often very politically charged. And that's one of the things that I really love about this series is that it can make these wonderful political statements, and also have a good time. Right. The whole point of it is to show that that the, the, it may be a fantasy setting, but it is, it is all situations and, and dilemmas and complications that, uh, that are encountered on a frequent basis that pop up and, and announce themselves to us um, in that's why it's often that's why it's characterized as um, satire is because while uh, while the details may not be uh, the same as details of things here on Earth, you will often feel an uncanny similarity uh, to things that uh, you encounter here on Earth. But the abstraction of it. Um, the removing our own, in, the, removing the immediacy of it and putting it on another world allows us to look at it through a new lens and, and hopefully a little more clearly and a little more humorously uh, without losing that, uh, without losing the impact or the, the relationship that we have to them. Yeah, that says it uh, probably better than I would have put it. <laughs> A little bit about Terry Pratchett as well before we start discussing some specific Discworld books. Uh, he's an English author. Well, he's known perhaps most for the Discworld books. There's 40-something books in the series. It's There's a lot of them. And most of the books are fairly self-contained, although there are a couple of short series within Discworld that maintain the same rough cast. 
and themes. He was also a friend of the author Neil Gaiman, known who is, if you're paying any attention to pop culture these days, known for Good Omens, which he wrote with Terry Pratchett. Yeah, so it's funny. My brother-in-law, uh, I was visiting my brother-in-law, my uh, sister one time, and my brother-in-law had Good Omens on his bookshelf. And I said, oh, I love that book. I came to, and it, what was funny was we started talking about it, and it turned out that I had come to Good Omens through Terry Pratchett. He had come to Good Omens through Neil Gaiman. We both loved Good Omens. So <laughs> even though we come from different directions to get there. And it, once you've read a little bit of both of them, you can kind of see which sections were majority written by one or the other. Uh, basically, if there are footnotes that have footnotes, that's probably Pratchett. Yeah. Yes, that is that's something that he's known for and is very he uses it to great effect in the Discworld novels. He does. In my case, Good Omens was actually my introduction to both Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. <laughs> I, uh, I read I read Good Omens in high school, and from there, uh, that introduced me to Gaiman's uh, Sandman series and uh, Pratchett's Discworld. And then to round out the trilogy, I had actually come to Good Omens through both Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Uh, I had been recommended Neil Gaiman's American Gods for years as a big fan of urban fantasy, and... Given some of the recent political situations over the last couple of years, I was recommended to read the Vimes books of Terry Pratchett's Discworld. That was where I started Discworld, was with the Vimes books. And decided, having decided that I liked the both of them, I saw Good Omens, knew there was a show coming out, and decided to pick up the book. So uh, what, what are the Vimes books? The Vimes books are a short series. There's... Uh, about five or six of them, I believe, that follow around a member of the city guard of the city of Ankh Morpork. Uh, Vimes. Oh, I forget his last name. Vimes is Vimes his is last, last name, name, I believe. It's Sam Vimes. Ah, uh, uh, yes. yes. I-, I was thinking of the uh, moniker that his ancestor had earned for lopping off the head of the tyrant. Yep. So Sam Vimes is a cop's cop which is a hard thing to be in a city where the crime is literally organized and has guilds is a functioning legal and political entity. Uh, But he nevertheless has to go about his business of trying to solve, in particular, any unsanctioned criminal activity that besets his poor city. Yes, and at the start of the books, Vimes is... Not a particularly likable character. He is... Well, he's an asshole. Um, He's somewhat racist. And prone to getting too deep in his cups. He struggles with with his alcoholism throughout the series, although he, I believe, uh, stops drinking during the first book. And his... The character of Vimes is of... Someone who genuinely cares about the people in the city of Ankh-Morpork, or, well, he is eventually, and he he has a strong sense of responsibility and social power. There is a... I'm going to jump kind of out of whack a bit in the script. There is 
so one of the things that's kind of brute breached containment about Discworld is this thing called the Vimes theory of economics. I mean, maybe it's the Vimes boots theory of economics, and it goes something like this. Poor man buys boots for $10 and they last him a year. Eventually he has to buy another pair when the soles give out. But a rich man spends $50 on a good pair of boots and his boots last longer than the poor man's. In fact, so much such that the poor man ends up spending more money on boots than the rich man does. And still has cold feet at the end of it. Yes. And this is kind of one of the insights to social inequality that uh, Pratchett works into his books that is really a lovely thing to read. In particular, I was recommended that I read Night Watch, one of the later books in the series. Given the political situations in the United States with widespread protests about police brutality. Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things about uh, Vimes and his particular role and um, and also about Antmore work in general and the relationship between him and the city. Um, the city is home to what seems like an everything number of non-human species. Uh, the question, of course, is whether they were there all along and only started to emerge when conditions changed or whether uh, conditions changing drew them in. Uh, that's sort of left as an open question. Um, but one thing, but uh, the interesting thing about that is that it, is that city grows more visibly cosmopolitan, especially as the series goes on. And that, that sort of tracks along with Vime's relative ascent in and and the importance of uh, the city guard over uh, the book's progression. Did you notice that? I don't think I noticed that on my initial read-through. Uh, right. Kind of with some retrospect, I can see it now. Um, but I was always a little bit more focused on Vime's development throughout the series. I accidentally started the series out of order. The first book I read was Nightwatch, and then I went to Guards Guards. And for me, I think that was a good introduction to Vimes, because I really would have just utterly despised him if uh, I had just about him as he is in Guards Guards for the first time. But I got to see how he... By the time I'd read Guards Guards, I knew, okay, he's going to be a better person. He's just got to do some development. So... I'm going to throw a little bit of uh, of a theory here. Um, a little bit of uh, so. Bimes is Fukuyama's the last man, and here's what I mean by that. So Fukuyama was a writer who, in the aftermath of the end of the cold, uh, published a text called "The End of History." Uh, the theory professed by this paper is that. Uh, there have been competing ideologies throughout history, and with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the destruction of communism as a threat to uh, liberal democracy as a system, that essentially ended 
the last serious ideological challenge, which meant that history, for all intents and purposes, was over. Uh, what would proceed now, from that point on would be uh, refinements or struggles or developments in attempts to uh, optimize or perfect liberal democracy. And so, and so I'm going to propose to you, and you can, and we'll see what we think of this, that Vines is playing the role of the last man in this theory. The theory is that the last man is not the literal last human being, it's the last sort of person, the last sort of person who is existing in a liberal democracy. And, and by liberal democracy, what we mean is a democracy that is centered around the rights of the and that is tolerant, right? Not ideologically bound to oppose any of its constituents. So what we see as the series develops is not only that the city grows more cosmopolitan, but more and more of them become members of the Night Watch too. Uh, and when we are introduced to the Night Watch, it's a handful of humans. I'm saying, as we go on, it, you get werewolf, vampire, dwarves, trolls, uh, ghouls, on and on and on. And Ein's ultimate thought process about what he's supposed to be doing. Because Alcmore Pork is not a democracy by any stretch, but both he and his foil, the patricians here of Alcmore, seem to have a common understanding that the government that governs best governs least. And their goal is to make it so that all the people of Alcmore Pork can do whatever it is they do to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. And as long as they're not like actively stabbing each other, then by all means, go on. So, so long as they're not actively stabbing each other without sanction. Correct, because there is an Assassin's Guild. So, but that, that's part of the system as design, right? And so the, the optimization of the system to allow those within to pursue uh, their profession and their happiness is is the point of the system, and it should not have powers that exceed that. And within that city, you can have all sorts of people that can pursue that Ankh-Mor Pork dream. What do you think of that? What do you think of that analysis? That is a really interesting read on it. Uh, I, I think I overall agree with your theory that Vimes kind of fits into that, the last man, and the seeking of governance without governance, if that makes sense. That Now, I am still reading Discworld novels. I have um, The Light Fantastic sitting behind me. Uh, I finished The Color of Magic a few days ago. Not a few days ago. Some time ago. And I'm going to have to reread the... Uh, the Vimes books when I get home, uh, because I think you're absolutely right, but I don't remember enough of the that side of the novels. I was always more focused on the development of the characters, in particular, Cherry and Carrot mean a lot to me uh, as a transgender Cuban-American woman who doesn't look very Cuban. 
uh, Carrot, for those who haven't quite read the series, is a human who was raised by dwarves and fully believes himself to just be a rather tall dwarf. So there's another aspect to this as well, which is that he, and spoiler for 30-year-old book here, um, (laughs) he uh, is by lineage the correct, the uh, true heir of more pork, which is a touch to in white centuries. Um, so, in in the apocrypha, it's filed under. Don't ask if you know what's good for you. Um, but the significance of Parrot is as well is that he begins to understand what vines means, and he accepts. A role as Vimes, his best subordinate by far, a very capable and talented officer, strong, smart, every good adjective that you can think of. But he starts to understand what Vimes is up to in terms of hands off. And there's an exchange uh, at one point where uh, Vimes is talking with someone and he says, he's thinking to himself, Ankh-Mor Pork had been under the thumb of many rulers before, insane rulers, cruel rulers, evil rulers, but it had never experienced the true horror of a truly good ruler. And he's thinking this in reference to Carrot and Carrot's potential. But Carrot, Mm. by realizing, realizing this and understanding this, and he stays in his role, he remains captain as Vine's subordinate, knowing full well that he could easily outmaneuver him or out in any or overpower him in any sort of contest the two that could be pitted against each other in. The carrot would always win, but he doesn't. He refrains. And you know, the the chestnut, the, the greatest use of power is in the foot. Right. So that that's a fascinating uh, aspect to, to Carrot's existence in this milieu. Uh, Ian, any thoughts from you on this? I am thinking that it has been too long since I have read any of these books. <laughs> oh, they're a treat. They're such a treat. Yeah. So when when I was first reading them, I was really I first was really searching out the. Uh, the Rincewind books. So Rincewind is the cowardly wizard. Uh, unfortunately, has one of the eight great spells, or the seven great spells of the land stuck in its head, which makes it so that he can't learn any other spells because 100% of the neural circuitry spells is being hogged by the great spell, uh, which results in him being the worst wizard And because yeah, he is, you know, because he's a worst wizard ever. He is a natural-born coward and a functional multi-lingual. Uh, sorry, Sagan, Brian, I you kind of cut out for me there. Oh no, I was just saying that he's survived every whole life uh, to his eternal 
emotional dismay. Yeah, Rincewind, uh, when we meet him, is almost kind of something of a con artist, I believe. It's like we're having some difficult difficulties. Brad, can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay, you're coming through much more clearly now. Yeah, I was... Yeah, wow, <laughs> you were just all of a sudden much clearer. Okay, good. Yeah, so I was I was rambling along, but the only point I was trying to make is that I was I started with the Rincewind book. One of the kind of nice things about Discworld is there's really not much of a set order to the books outside of a couple cases like the Rincewind novels and the Vimes books where they do kind of happen in loose chronological order. Almost all of them bar the first two Rincewind books. You really don't need to read them in order. Yeah, and especially with the fact that there's different parallel stories uh, or parallel genres that the series finds itself in. Like the the order, the, the books within the Vime series have a particular order, but they mean to the particular order of the Rincewind series. For example, and those have no bearing on the uh, on the progress of the the Agatha and the Coven books, or the or the death, or the ones that follow death, or even some of the others that don't follow particular major characters, but are simple one-offs. Um, I believe Equal Rights is one of those. I think Equal Rights is considered part of the Witches series. My personal, my personal favorite of the standalone ones is uh, Small Gods. Um, but another good one that's kind of standalone, although there's kind of this... All right, so there's, there's the Rincewind series, there's the City Watch series, there's the Witches series, and there's the Death series. And those are, like, the four series that have, like, the major sub-series within the, the Discworld setting that have a consistent core cast. But there's also this sort of Industrial Revolution series that doesn't have a consistent core cast, um, but shows up throughout uh, the, the series. And one of those is Monstrous Regiment, which I know I've recommended to you before. Yes, that was actually originally what I wanted to do this episode on. Yeah. Because it has quite a few uh, trans themes to it, which was why I wanted to talk about it. However, when I moved uh, for the summer, I have not been able to get by a bookstore, pick up a physical copy, and ended up wanting to switch to the Vimes books because I was able to get more folks who were familiar with that and I had already read them. Yeah, so, But there's an interesting consequence of having all these books which are, which are not really related except for the common setting and even that is kind of loose. Um, so there's a, a famous comment that Pratchett made when he was asked about uh, a map and he said, uh, there's no map of Discord. You can't map a sense of humor. And 
what is a map anyway? It's just a space beyond which there be dragons. Well, they're dragons, all right, and they're here jostling and trying to sell you souvenirs. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's typical Pratchett Witter work for you. Um, but the the point of that, I think, is that at, it's sort of uh, challenging to another kind of authorial approach, which is okay, I must construct the entire uh, world from the stones up before I even start thinking about characters. This is very, not if not quite the opposite approach, then kind of close to it. Um, and, and it sorts of hit, hits at something that I think is interesting, which is what is enough world building, right? How much world building is the right, enough, is the right amount? And the answer is enough to tell the story, right? More than that, is it necessary or not? That's a that's a question I would pose to you too. What's what the right amount of world building? Ooh, that is that is a very tricky question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> personally, I'm of the opinion that the right amount of world building is very fluid and is enough to get the story going. Uh, I believe we've talked a little bit about this before with kind of my bare-bones approach to writing and only having what is entirely necessary for the story to work and not much else. Meanwhile, I world-build for fun. So <laughs> right now, that question is hitting me like truck-coon. Yeah, and, and you know what? Is that that approach? There are authors who succeed magnificently with that approach as well, like uh, Tolkien inventing an entirely new language, or uh, because he felt like it was necessary just for himself, or um, you know, we, we've got uh, um, Patrick Rothfuss who felt the felt the need to. Uh, create the entire prehistory of his books and in, in create the setting of the decline and fall of the empire as the prehistory that is mentioned only obliquely and by reference and by consequence in the book rather than rather than a saga that's central to the proceeding itself. So so there are people who are able to succeed with a stones with a stone up approach. But the question of whether or not that's necessary, well, Pratchett would seem to disagree as to the essentiality of all that world building. Uh, enough to tell the story without boxing you in and limiting your options for future story is, seems to be his approach, which is a bit leaner. It's all very interesting seeing what does and doesn't work for different authors. So I, I get the feeling um, that... Yeah, because he started with, uh, with the color of magic, and in the color of magic, that's the first appearance of Ankh-Mor Pork. And when you get around to the Vimes books, it doesn't look quite the same. It's familiar enough, but it's it's he was able to take this setting that already existed and flesh it out more so that he could take it in a different direction. And that was a really interesting consequence of having, so it, it's not that uh, he had it available to him 
you know, I've found when I've done ongoing series or, or, or stories that exist within the same universe, that if I create a character somewhere else, it may, I then have them on the shelf so that when I need someone to go here and do this, I can say, oh, I can go get that guy. He's available. You know, so, but with a uh, Harry Pratchett, it's almost like that for setting. He's got the different places. He doesn't need to know every place between Ankhmore Port and the Counterweight Continent. But if he knows he has those and a couple other, then he can stitch different routes through them or pull uh, different pieces, bits and pieces from them when he needs them. And so the they operate like you know characters on reserve. You know, also almost like spices on a spice rack, right? You're not <laughs> not every story needs it's a teaspoon of garam masala but boy the recipes <laughs> that need garam masala really could use yeah i think that's a good way to put it um i remember with the vimes books kind of the earlier on ones where the dwarven uh kingdoms were not super well fleshed out there was mostly just enough background for carrot to have come from a dwarven community into the big city and then as novels progress and as we get cherry and some of the plots about gender it gets fleshed out more and we take a trip uh down there and it's it's kind of like you said it's a spice pulled from reserve and i lost my train of thought <laughs> <laughs> right right it was it was part it was available to be a supplement without without needing to have been fleshed out before i have a question for you brian oh sorry you will just have to assume that whatever i said during the gap was brilliant um (laughs) 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 no so um so in one of the early Earlier books, a dwarf and a troll are argued, and the dwarf references a battle that he plays with victory of dwarves, and the troll argues it from an ambush. And the uh, the battle becomes a rather important plot point in one of the later novels, Thug, one of my favorites. And the battle is elaborated and even slightly revised. Um, to suggest that it was a battle where both armies ambushed each other. Um, and uh, But this isn't exactly a contradiction because uh, all of the history of that battle is murky enough that almost any interpretation uh, fits the facts that are known at the time. So, uh, again, this is another example of there was this thing small thing that was embedded in the setting uh, for flavor that happens to lend itself to elaboration when necessary. So I, I strongly doubt that Pratchett had the idea in mind for Thud when he threw that throwaway reference into the earlier book, but it was available for him when he could make use of it. Now, I have a question for you, Brian, about um, kind of a little bit about world building and storytelling. And 
the general theme of this month comedy. So we've talked previously on the show about um, um you weren't there for this, but about red versus blue and media like Elgood is Shive that start off as what we would now today call shit posts. And there's no, not much of a connecting thread, just various things that the creator or creators find funny. Mm-hmm. And both of the cases that I've cited here have done an excellent job of taking what was unserious and world-building it into the broader narrative. And that's kind of similar to what you've been saying with kind of how Terry Pratchett keeps stuff in reserves and pull, pulls it on the shelf. Although it's done almost from the reverse, it's made, and then they have to figure out how to put it in the shelf. I was curious about what your thoughts on that might be. Yeah, so <laughs> so I'm about to tell on myself a little bit. Um, I remember a story uh, where I had characters which, in the moment, were unimportant, right? They were there only for the purpose of of the actual protagonist bouncing off of them. And so I badly underdescribed them. When I then wrote a story later featuring the same protagonist, I was like, well, crap, now I have to go back and actually think about who these people were. <laughs> because <laughs> I needed those characters again. I hadn't anticipated meeting those characters again when I wrote them the first time. Um, but I ended up requiring them for another story. And then I had to basically clean up my own mess. Um, so yeah, so with red versus blue, um, I'm familiar with that. I, I watched, you know, I was, I was there when it started, man. He said, putting his thumbs in his suspenders. Um, (laughs) 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 so the idea of trying to, uh, graft some sort of broader, more, more important narrative, it definitely seems comical to, to someone who was who was you know in the vibes of it in the moment i believe that happened um but but that seems like it that seems like trying to take something that was one thing and and trying to make it something else right sort of like what it reminds me of most is uh business where you've got runs particular writing teams and editing teams and um eventually they've got some ideas right. that they're they're like oh I can do this with batman and then eventually they either get done or they get tired of it and they move on and they bring in um they bring in a new editorial team and and writing team, and they or may not have any affinity for what the last team did. So you have the same, uh, uh, the same comic, uh, different runs that have, have uh, uh, very different tones and ideas and and themes, even though the they seem the same. So um, that sort of seems not ex- exactly what happened. Red versus blue, but kind of similar. That's what it reminds me of most, anyway. But the idea of trying to, it's sort of the related to how much world building is enough. Well, there is a limit to, (laughs) there is a lower limit to where, (laughs) um, if you may, 
you don't always know what the tricky things think oh i'm never going to write another story about this again in which case okay minimum description required is probably okay um but it's it's more difficult the longer you remain in the same universe so the longer the same story or set of stories goes uh the harder it gets the more you get wrapped up in your own mythology and the more you get caught in your own contradictions um that's why that's why that's one of the reasons that the comics love to reboot things so often is because they can just flush all the baggage and all the all the complications and all of the constraints put upon them by the by the previous ownership and and start over it also gives them the comic companies the opportunity to produce new number one issues that become collector's items so there's there's a business <laughs> aspect um but yeah so you could even say you could even you could even say it allows them to flush the luggage away <laughs> to bring it back yeah i like it yeah so how much world building is the right amount again it's the right amount for the story depending upon how many stories you want to write <laughs> you should have an amount of world building uh proportional to the scale of the task you're setting yourself i suppose is one way to put it and kind of on a related tangent something to close out the episode a little bit some of the for me funniest stuff from Pratchett's Discworld novels are in the little details of the world building. Uh, one that sticks out to me is the uh, way that they achieve modern-ish technology through magic. In particular, the camera, which is just a box in which a small imp sits and draws a sketch of what it sees. It's a Funny, humorous little detail. There's a small, snarky imp uh, inside a camera. And it's also a neat way of introducing a detail from the real world that allows for some nice little contrivances. Yeah, so there's... um, (laughs) There's... It's another way to make things more uh, familiar and thus more relatable right one of the it can't if it was an entirely alien setting right then um it might be harder to pick up on similarities in the sorts of things that happen uh but you know tying this back to what we said at the beginning about the about uh the satire is that when you have a world that has cameras and newspapers and that has um politicians docking for power and when you can have a a a political entity that that is eerily reminiscent to something that happened in the real world uh in terms of the committee to re-elect the president um and its counterpart in discworld the committee to unelect the president and um that when you when you have some of the elements familiar uh, then that can help the things that are supposed to be familiar land and register as, oh, this is about this, um, without directly being that. And also, it's funny. 
it's a funny image to imagine that little imp in there just, you know, trying to whiz away. Um, it, it reminds me of the, um, there are a number of thought experiments in physics and theoretical physics that have to do with, uh, with demons or imps that have precision control of things uh, in order to make the thought experiment work. And this is that in the writing form. <laughs> this is that utilized for storytelling rather than for the uh, illustration of a theoretical physics point. Man, I hadn't had to think about any of those demons um, for a couple of months at least, and now you made me think of them again. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'd been enjoying my time without my demons. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, and you uh, sort of reminded me the, the, um, the university, unseen university, uh, is a recurring bit, the only school of uh, higher learning on the disc world. And it's described in the Apocrypha as where wizards don't so much use magic as don't use magic, but in an active way kind of like the atomic bomb. <laughs> and, <laughs> and not only is that a funny thing in and of itself, but it's the end of history again, right? right? It's the, the forbearance of the use of power as the noblest use of that power. Even the wizards uh, get into trouble when they use their magic too profligately, and we see some illustrations of that in in some of the earlier rinse wind books and so the wizards who tend to have the longest survival are the ones who uh find ways to talk their enemies into an early grave rather than the ones who sling spells at them uh all willy-nilly so that that links back to uh to the earlier analysis i made about the about uh the end of history yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I had heard that term, the end of history, a couple times in passing, but I had never heard the origin of it. Uh, so I was kind of struck by that when you were talking about it the first time of, oh, so that's what that phrase is about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, part of the zeitgeist, but that doesn't mean that people know where it came from. Yeah. Kind of like the word zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before before we wrap up, um, the this uh, the mention of of using uh, magic and fantastical elements of the setting to replicate uh, recognizable technologies actually reminded me of um, going postal, uh, which is one of the later books in the series. It's kind of a standalone, um, but. It's the source of one of the more common references you'll see to uh, the series on the internet, which is if you go on Reddit or Twitter or forums, if those still exist, uh, and people start talking about Discworld, you'll probably see a lot of people typing GNU Terry Pratchett or something like that. Um, and... In Going Postal, there's an invention called the Clax that is an optical telegraph. And the syst it's developed into this system for transmitting uh, messages long distance 
and it has these codes and the phrase GNU or the letters GNU is one of those clax codes that means don't log this message pass it on when it reaches the end of the line send it back and there's a plot point in the book where a minor plot point where a clax operator who has died um, the other operators honor his memory by just sending his name back and forth along the clacks forever. Um, and Terry Pratchett passed away due to Alzheimer's um, in... 2007, I believe. 2007, I think is right, yeah. And so his fans have been honoring him on the internet ever since. With GNU uh, 2015, I just looked it up. Oh, 2015, okay. A few would also survive. A few years ago. <laughs> a few years ago. 2015, yeah. that's actually fairly <laughs> recent. Jeez. Um, but the other reason I would mention going postal, um, in the event that the written word is not your cup of tea... I can't imagine why it wouldn't be. If you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. Well, uh, but if you prefer to consume your media visually, Going Postal has a pretty nice um, uh, BBC miniseries adaptation. Uh, starring, I believe, Charles Dance as Lord Vetinari. What a wonderful character. So, yes. Yeah. If, you would, if you would prefer to get your Discworld fix visually, um, I do recommend that one, Going Postal. Yeah. If we had more time, there could be an entire discourse on uh, the interplay between Vimes and Betanari and how they're full oils for each other even though their ultimate goal both both their ultimate goal and, and their ultimate methods uh, align more neatly than either of them would ever admit to i think that might be a topic for another podcast a different time perhaps as we are about out of time here yes uh before we go ian do we have anything in the mailbag today uh no new mail today um, but a big thanks to everyone who has recently left us five-star reviews on Spotify. Um, so that really encourages us to keep going. This is a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. And seeing your appreciation uh, really makes that worth it. So if you would, yes, like to uh, share anything with us, uh, please send us an email. Our uh, address is fanfictapes at gmail.com. You can also leave a comment on our YouTube channel or a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, please also leave us more rate of those ratings on Spotify and the other services that y'all use for listening to this podcast. Uh, we are also on Twitter. And Maya, you run our Twitter. Anything there? Yes. Our Twitter is at FanFictionTapes, capital F, capital T, but only the first of... Actually, I was going to say the first of each, but that's not true because there's a T in fiction, fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I run that. I post sometimes about the episodes that we do and other shenanigans that I feel like talking about. And if you want to reach us there or get anything on the episode, we'll be sure to take a look at anything you send us there as well. At least for as long as Twitter's still around as a service. That's true. We are recording these ahead of uh, posting time, and Twitter is just increasingly a bonfire. All right. Before we go, Brian, do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, well, I mean, I plugged something that was I thought was a, a good supplement to the material last time. I don't really have anything this time, or or is this supposed to be where we talk about what whatever we're working on ourselves at the moment? That was the idea, but anything, yeah. Okay. Well, okay, so uh, my current project is a uh, long fic in the Ruby universe, uh, Schnee Dust Reborn, um, following a pair of sisters as they try to try to uh, restart a business that's uh, been mercilessly killed, but this is the Ruby universe, and there is nothing without uh, combat and and shenanigans and eldritch entities and whatnot. So I'm having fun with that. I have been meaning to check that out for the longest time. I'm going to need to strap myself to a chair and read it at some point. Yeah, it's uh, it's turning into my second longest published pick. It's not going to top my longest, like 70,000 words beyond it still, but it's, 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 it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> I look forward to whenever I stop procrastinating and actually read it. Well, folks, I am and have been Maya, and I was joined by... Ryan! And as always, I am Ian. Until next time, bye!